Section 1 of Tales of English Minsters, Canterbury Cathedral, Kent, and St. Paul's Cathedral, London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Tales of English Minsters, Canterbury Cathedral, Kent, and St. Paul's Cathedral, London by Elizabeth Wilson Grierson section one canterbury cathedral kent county part one like a mighty army moves the church of god brothers we are treading where the saints have trod one when we come to visit canterbury cathedral we find that there is so much to talk about that it seems as if the stories connected with it would fill a book of themselves it is the most interesting of all our cathedrals though i think that winchester follows hard on its heels and in one way it is unique for as you know it is the mother cathedral of the great church of england for the archbishop of canterbury ranks first among all anglican bishops whether at home or in our colonies and when difficulties arise in the church not only in england but in those far-off lands which cannot be settled by the bishops and clergy living there it is to the archbishop of canterbury that they look for advice and aid now perhaps you wonder why i have said the mother cathedral and not the mother church which is not such a clumsy expression and seems to mean the same thing ah but i have a reason for doing this for when we go down among the green kentish hop fields and enter the quaint little city lying among its pleasant meadows it is not the cathedral standing in the middle of the town which i want you to visit first but a tiny little red-roofed church with a square ivy-covered tower which stands in a churchyard which in summer is fragrant with the perfume of roses on a hillside just outside the town this church is called st martin's and tiny as it is it can claim the proud title of the mother church of england for as far as we know it is the very oldest church in the country and we can touch the walls part of them built like the tower of st albans cathedral of roman bricks which are standing to-day very much as they stood thirteen hundred years ago when a christian queen worshipped here when all her subjects and even her own husband were pagans but how did a christian queen come to be living in a heathen country you ask well, i will tell you as you all know the romans under julius caesar invaded and conquered britain about fifty years before the birth of our lord they settled down and colonized our country which they held for over four hundred years and curious to say although they were heathens themselves and bitterly opposed to the spread of christianity it was through them that the way was opened up for the faith of christ to be planted in our land for they traded with france or gaul as it was then called where in the second century there were already christian churches and the people of gaul were not slow to send missionaries across the channel to the island from which they were beginning to obtain large quantities of wheat and in spite of persecution from the roman emperors the faith spread in england and a few churches were built here and there in the more important towns now there was a colony of romans settled at canterbury or as it was called in those days durovernum just as there were colonies of romans settled at york lincoln verulam and other places we have read of 
and there must have been some christians living among them perhaps some of the roman soldiers themselves believed the christian faith and they built a little church here on the hillside and dedicated it to st martin st martin was a french bishop the bishop of tours and i'm going to tell you his story partly because some people think that it was he who took an interest in the christians at canterbury and perhaps came over from gaul to found this little church and partly because his story is such a beautiful one that i am sure you would like me to tell it to you even if the saint had nothing to do with canterbury at all now although st martin was a french bishop he was not a frenchman he was the son of a roman magistrate and he was born in hungary about a d three sixty when he was a boy he heard the story of our lord's life and death and he made up his mind that he would be one of his followers his parents were pagans however and they did not want him to become a christian so they made him a soldier hoping that the excitement of a soldier's life would drive his new idea out of his head and their plan was partly successful for although martin as he moved about gaul with his regiment still kept the old resolve before him and went to church sometimes and even put down his name as a catechumen that is one who desired to be instructed in the christian faith and to be baptized he never came to the point as we say but just let time slip on meaning some day when he had more leisure to present himself for baptism and thus publicly declare himself a christian the years passed however and martin grew to be a full-grown man but although he was good and kind he had never been baptized now it chanced that one winter his regiment was stationed at amiens and on a bitterly cold night he was walking near the city gate perhaps he was the officer on duty and was visiting the guard when he saw a miserable beggar with hardly any clothes on crouching by the wall almost perished with cold in those days no one heeded beggars and it would have been the most natural thing for a soldier in martin's position to walk on and leave the poor man to die but the young officer had learned what christ had taught about showing mercy and he took his thick warm cloak from his shoulders and cut it in two with his sword and gave half of it to the beggar to protect him from the cold the next night so the story runs as martin the soldier lay sleeping in his chamber he had a wonderful vision the gates of heaven were opened and he saw our lord on a throne surrounded by a host of saints and angels and to his astonishment in the midst of all the glory and brightness he was wearing the half of a soldier's cloak martin recognized it as his and while he was gazing at the scene in breathless awe it seemed to him that christ pointed to the cloak and said softly behold the mantle given to me by martin yet but a catechumen the vision faded but the words sank into the young man's heart if his master could so confess him in heaven for doing such a little act of mercy he determined to be brave enough to confess him on earth and without delay he made public profession of his faith and was baptized and more than this he left the army and went into a monastery and became a monk afterwards he was made bishop of tours and we read that until he died he fought as bravely with his tongue and with his pen against errors and abuses in the church as he had fought with his sword when he was a soldier 
but now we must leave him and come back to the little church on the kentish hillside which is called by his name it must have fallen more or less into ruins or at least it must have stood empty and deserted for a century or two after the romans were recalled to rome and the heathen anglo-saxons overran england then what happened at one or two other places happened here as the country grew more settled a new town arose with a new name duroburnum became canterbury the burg of the men of kent the capital of their kingdom now as you know by looking at any old map the angles settled on the east coast of england taking possession of the land from the firth of forth to the south of lincolnshire the saxons took possession of most of the middle and the south of england and the jutes under their leaders hengist and horsa took up their abode in kent and it chanced that in the sixth century a great king arose in kent called ethelbert who conquered a large part of the country of the angles and saxons and became their overlord he was a pagan fierce strong and warlike who worshipped thor and wodan the heathen gods of the north but he went on a visit to gaul and there he fell in love with a frankish princess named bertha daughter of king sherebet of paris he loved her so much that he made up his mind at once that no other maiden should be his wife and he went and asked her father if he would allow him to marry her now as we know ethelbert was a very powerful monarch and i expect he thought that king sherebert would be glad to let his daughter become his wife but to his astonishment the french king hesitated he and all his family were christians and he knew that the kentish king was a pagan and although he wanted to be on friendly terms with him it did not seem right to allow his young daughter to go alone into a heathen country so he made one condition if king ethelbert would allow a christian priest to accompany the princess and would promise that she would be free to practise the rites of her own religion in her new home he could marry her but not unless the fierce heathen king agreed to this arrangement readily he was so accustomed to people worshipping different gods that he did not mind much what god princess bertha believed in so long as she was willing to be his wife and when he was discussing the matter he suddenly remembered the little christian church up on the hillside overlooking his capital and he promised that henceforth it should belong to the princess and her chaplain and that they might have service in it every day if they liked king sherebert was satisfied so the marriage took place and queen bertha went away with her husband to his own country taking with her a good bishop named luidard to be her friend and adviser her story is something like the story of st margaret of scotland for as you will one day read st margaret was also a royal princess who went into a strange country and was married to a fierce warlike husband king malcolm canmore who although he was not a heathen like king ethelbert was only a christian in name until the brave example of his gentle wife made him think of religion as he had never thought of it before it must have been very lonely for queen bertha at first her husband's palace stood in the centre of the little burg which was surrounded as were all towns in those days by a high wall so as to be guarded against any sudden attack from any enemy 
these walls were pierced by gates which were always well guarded and we can imagine that it must have been a trial to the young queen to pass out as we read she did every morning through the groups of curious soldiers who perhaps dropped scoffing words about her religion as she went through their midst to her little church to join with her faithful friend luidard and any other christians she could gather together in the worship of god but she did it and she must have done it in such a wise and tactful way that her husband watching to see what sort of religion hers was came to respect it and to wish to hear more about it so queen bertha little as she thought it was really acting as a missionary in those difficult years of her early married life and by and by as you will hear she had her reward now we will leave her at canterbury for a time and turn our thoughts to a scene that took place in rome some four years before she came to england there was at that time a slave market in rome and one day a young roman deacon of noble birth was walking through it his name was gregory as he was looking with pitying eyes at the groups of slaves standing chained together in the hot sunshine his attention was arrested by some young boys with white skins and golden hair who had evidently been brought from some far distant country for no slaves with faces like this had ever been seen in rome before gregory paused for a moment he felt that he would like to know where the strangers came from for their golden hair and sweet pale faces reminded him of what he had read about the saints in heaven from what country do they come he asked at last turning to the slave dealer who had charge of the group they are english angles said the man wondering if the young deacon wanted to buy one of them they should not be called angles but angels with faces so angel-like said gregory sadly his mind still full of thoughts of heaven they come from a kingdom called daira went on the merchant hoping he had found a purchaser daira answered the young man who was not thinking of buying slaves at all but of how it might be possible to teach these children with the angel faces about god i plucked from god's ire and called to christ's mercy and what is the name of their king he asked hoping perhaps to hear that the king of the angles was a christian ella was the reply now in those days a people were always on the lookout for good omens and as ella sounded like the beginning of the alleluia which gregory was wont to sing in church he instantly took this for a good omen some day alleluia will be sung in ella's land he said hopefully and passed on out of the market wondering more than ever how it would be possible to send missionaries to england if the pope will give me leave i will go thither myself he said and he went to the pope and begged him to allow him to gather together a few other monks who would be willing to share the danger with him and go with him as missionaries to england the pope would have granted his request but the people of rome would not hear of it for gregory was so much respected that they wanted to keep him among them and the pope listened to them and greatly to the young deacon's disappointment bade him stay at home but in a wonderfully short time gregory became pope himself and had the power to send men wherever he liked and although he had a great deal to think about in his new position he never forgot the fair-haired boys he had seen in the market-place and was always on the lookout for a suitable time to send men to preach the gospel to their nation 
at last it came for news was brought to him that the christian princess bertha had married the heathen king of kent and that he had allowed her to take a christian priest to her new home and to practise her own religion if his wife is a christian he cannot refuse admittance to my monks thought good pope gregory and straightway he sent for a very brave and holy man named augustine and asked him if he would go at the head of a small company of monks and preach the gospel to the english nation augustine said he would and shortly afterwards he set out at the head of a little band of followers for england they had not gone very far however when their hearts failed them and they sent their leader back to rome to beg the pope to allow them to return perhaps some of you are inclined to say cowards when you read this but just think for a moment of what these men were asked to do there were neither post offices nor telegrams nor trains in those days and they were asked to set out from rome and go probably on foot right across the continent of europe to a strange land whose inhabitants they had heard spoken of as barbarous fierce and unbelieving and of whose language they did not know a word it was really very much as if we had asked one of our friends to-day to set out and walk right across the continent of africa and visit some savage king on the other side who would probably murder him as soon as he set foot in his country but pope gregory was made of the stuff that martyrs are made of and he would not allow the monks to return he sent augustine back to them with a letter which we can read to-day if we will telling them that having begun a good work they must not think of giving it up and praying to god to grant that although he might not see them again on earth he might be permitted to see the fruits of their labours in heaven for added the good pope thinking of the earnest desire which he himself had had to go to england though i cannot labour with you i shall partake in the joy of the reward because i am willing to labour do you remember the parable in the bible about the kingdom of heaven being like a grain of mustard seed the least of all the seeds and yet how when it springs up it grows into a mighty tree i think that if pope gregory had been able when he planted his grain of mustard seed and sent away his handful of half-frightened half-reluctant monks to look forward eighteen hundred years and see into what an enormous and far-spreading tree english christianity would grow he would have been content at last after weary travel the little band of missionaries arrived in england they landed at ebbsfleet in the isle of thanet which as you know is the northeast corner of kent augustine was a wise and prudent man and instead of beginning to preach to the people at once he sent a courteous message to the king at canterbury that some strangers from rome had arrived and would fain have an audience with him for he knew that he would have much more chance to succeed in his mission if the king took him and his companions under his protection now it seemed that king ethelbert must have watched queen bertha and become interested in the religion she professed for he said at once that he would meet the strangers and hear what they had to say but because he believed in witchcraft and was very much afraid that they might have the power to bewitch him he would not meet them in any house where he thought spirits had more power but went right on out into the country to a wide chalk down and there he gave audience to the little band of foreigners 
st augustine could not speak to him in his own language but he could speak the language of the people of gaul and he had taken the precaution to bring an interpreter over from gaul with him so he stood there before the king who was seated in rude state on the green turf and explained the christian faith to him and the frankish interpreter at his side translated his words as he went on when he had finished the king spoke telling him that his words seemed fair but that they were new and strange and that he could not give up the gods of his fathers for them but that he was willing to shelter and protect him and his monks and to allow them to preach in his kingdom then he went back to canterbury and in a very short time he sent an invitation to the strangers to come to his capital and so it was that christianity came back to england to the middle and south of it at least for as you may know it was brought to scotland and northumbria about the same time by st columba and his followers who came from ireland where the faith of christ still held sway not having been destroyed by the jutes and angles and saxons as it had been in britain if we could have stood at the side of st martin's church on the day when st augustine and his monks entered the burg of the men of kent we should have seen a strange sight indeed it has been described so accurately to us by the venerable Bede that we can almost picture it to ourselves we can imagine how the news must have spread in the little city that the strangers from rome to talk to whom the king himself had gone to the isle of thanet were coming to live among them and explain to them if they would listen their queen's religion and we could fancy how they would throng up this hilly road that passes the church for they knew that this was the way the strangers would come and perhaps they would stop and crowd together just by the church for i think queen bertha would be there with bishop Lidard, ready to welcome her fellow christians and to pray for the success of their mission and by and by the faint sound of singing would be heard and a strange little procession would come over the crest of the hill first came two monks one carrying high in the air a silver cross and the other a board on which was rudely traced the crucified figure of our lord then came the rest of the monks in their dark and travel-stained gowns with their leader st augustine in their midst they were chanting a litany as they walked one moment thinking of the heathen darkness that lay over the fair land into which they had come they were praying that god should turn away his wrath from the city and the next remembering with thankful hearts how they had been brought in safety to the end of their long and dangerous journey they were bursting into the word of praise which gregory had taken for his word of good omen in the roman market-place alleluia alleluia it would take too long to tell all that happened to st augustine and his monks we must hurry on to the history of the cathedral so i will only tell you that he preached constantly in the little church of st martin and that the king must sometimes have gone with his wife to listen to him for in a year we find that he became a christian and was baptized by st augustine indeed some people tell us that the very font that was used at the ceremony is standing in st martin's today 
now king ethelbert did not do things by halves and when he was converted he must have thrown all his influence on the side of the missionaries for great numbers of his subjects were baptized also and in no very long time we hear of him helping his nephew the king of the east saxons to build a cathedral in london and found a bishopric there he also handed over his palace in canterbury to st augustine and his friend telling them that they could turn it into a monastery while he and queen bertha retired to reclover which stands near the coast some miles distant where he built another royal residence this then was the beginning of the great cathedral which stands in the middle of the little city of canterbury for augustine founded not only a monastery but a church which was known as christ church and as has always happened in the building of our minsters this original church was burned rebuilt and improved added to and burned again then rebuilt until it has grown into the magnificent structure which we see before us today as was natural the roman missionary always looked to his friend pope gregory for help and advice in all his difficulties and this is how the english church came to be under the yoke of rome for so many long years this yoke grew to be so heavy that it could not be borne and it was thrown off at the reformation but just at first we can easily understand the comfort it would be to augustine to send letters to gregory telling him all his troubles and asking him what he should do and what rules he should lay down for the guidance of the christian congregations which were beginning to be formed all over the country and gregory sent back very wise and comforting answers we can read some of his letters still telling augustine to go to gaul and there be ordained archbishop of england by the frankish bishops then with their help to ordain some of his most trusted monks to be bishops under him whom he could appoint to rule over different parts of england now the royal palace of canterbury which the king had given to augustine covered a great deal of space for besides the actual dwelling-house there were gardens and pleasure-grounds round about it and we know that in those pleasure-grounds stood a ruined roman temple and like a wise man st augustine made the most of the present he had received not content with founding christ church on one side of the piece of ground he founded another church the church of st pancras on the other side just where the roman temple stood and between them perhaps using the palace itself as part of the buildings he founded a monastery which he dedicated to st peter and st paul but this name did not continue long for before the monastery was completed the great missionary archbishop had died and although at first he was buried in the grounds by the roadside we are told when the building was completed his body was taken up and laid to rest within its walls and from that time it was known as the monastery of st augustine now that we have learned the story of the beginning of canterbury cathedral let us approach it by the narrow streets of the little city and look at it as it stands to-day it is somewhat difficult to describe for it is so old and vast and has been improved and added to so often that although the principal part of the edifice is very regular being built as is usual in the form of a cross with a great square tower 
crowned by four little spires in the centre and two other towers each with four little spires also at the west end there are numberless little offshoots and towers and turrets each bearing its own name and having its own history for long ago the archbishops of canterbury were not only ministers of religion but ministers of state as well and they not only ruled the church but they helped the king to rule the state and to make laws just as the prime minister does to-day so they were very important dignitaries indeed and held their courts as if they were kings and received all sorts of people and transacted all manner of business so that the archbishop's palace at canterbury was almost as important a place as the king's palace at westminster so when we walk about the cathedral and its precincts we are not only treading where the saints have trod but we are treading where proud kings and fierce soldiers and scheming statesmen have trod as well some of whom it seems to us did not deserve to be named with the saints at all but we dare not pass judgment on them for they lived in fierce and turbulent times and their actions cannot be measured by our standards and each of them did their part by fair deeds or by deeds that do not look so fair in the building up of this great country of ours when we enter the enormous church there is one peculiarity that we notice at once it rises up from the nave which is the lowest part of it by flights of steps to the highest part which is the high altar and the chapel behind it in which the shrine of st thomas a becket once stood as you see the nave is shut off from the choir by a stone screen which is pierced by three doors one of which leads into the choir the other two into the side aisles and transepts this screen can only be reached by going up a flight of stone steps and when we pass through it and enter what is known as trinity chapel we have once more to ascend a flight of steps which are called the pilgrim steps i will tell you the meaning of this curious name later on perhaps the very first thing that we want to see in this wonderful church is st augustine's chair which stands in the east end of the building in a curious little circular chapel known as the corona or becket's crown when we look at this great chair fashioned out of three blocks of purbeck marble our thoughts travel back along the centuries and we seem to see a long chain every link of which is a man stretching between st augustine on the one hand and the present archbishop of canterbury dr davidson on the other for this is the chair in which all the archbishops of canterbury are enthroned some people are of opinion that it was king ethelbert's throne and that he gave it to st augustine to be his bishop's stool others think that it was not placed here until some centuries later but whether st augustine sat in it or not we know that it is very very old and we look at it with awe as we think of the long line of men some of whose names are almost forgotten now who have come one after the other all down the ages to take their seats upon it thus signifying to all the world that they were entering into st augustine's office and assuming the great and solemn responsibilities which that office implies let us think of the stories of a few of these men on whom so much responsibility rested when we look at the long roll of archbishops the first name of note after st augustine's is theodore do you know where he came from 
he was sent from rome but he was really a greek and he had been born and brought up in the city of tarsus the birthplace of st paul perhaps the schoolboys who read this book will not love this theodore of tarsus for he it was who introduced the teaching of greek into england he founded a school at canterbury and had the pupils taught his own language he also divided the country into dioceses and placed a bishop over each teaching these bishops to look to the archbishop of canterbury as their head and little as we may think it this was a great work for england for before theodore's time each bishop had settled down under the protection of a king and so had simply been the chief minister of that kingdom thus the archbishop of canterbury had been the bishop of the kingdom of kent the bishop of london the bishop of the east saxons the bishop of lichfield the bishop of mercia and so on but when archbishop theodore created new dioceses which were not measured by the boundaries of the various small kingdoms and when the bishops of these dioceses learned to look to canterbury for orders and advice rather than to their own petty kings then an object lesson was given and the first step was taken towards the breaking up of those smaller kingdoms and having one king to rule over all the land that was the piece of work which theodore did for the good of the church and the building up of the english nation then there was an archbishop named cuthbert who caused the creed and the lord's prayer to be taught to the people in their own tongue and not in latin which they could not understand he wrought this work for the church at large but there was another work which he wrought for his own cathedral church at canterbury which is very amusing and shows that he must have had a keen sense of humour in those old days a church was apt to grow famous not so much for the piety of the people who worshipped there as for the number of holy men who chanced to be buried within its walls we can see examples of this in the way in which every church of note had its shrine containing the body of its particular saint now we know that st augustine was buried in his monastery and not in his cathedral church and the archbishops who succeeded him followed his example and gave orders that they were to be buried in the monastery also and so it came about that there were no great men buried in the church at all and strangers who came to canterbury passed the cathedral by and flocked to the monastery to pray beside st augustine's grave this will never do said archbishop cuthbert to himself and he quietly wrote to the pope and to the king of kent asking that when his time came to die he might be laid to rest in the cathedral his request was granted but he said not a word to any one he kept the letters and bided his time for he knew that if the monks of st augustine's came to know of the slight he was about to cast on their monastery they would try to thwart his design at last the day came that he lay a-dying and his friends gathered round his bed with tearful faces but the archbishop was not tearful he was not afraid to die and he was glad to think that after his death he would be able to render a service to the church of which he was so proud so he drew out the letters he had received from king and pope and showed them to his astonished friends and told them where he desired to be buried then with a touch of humour which makes us feel that he must have been a very shrewd and human old man he added bury me first toll the bell afterwards so his friends buried him hurriedly and in secret 
then after they had filled in his grave and built up the stones again they tolled the great bell mournfully to let all canterbury know that the archbishop had passed away when the abbot and monks of the monastery came to claim as was their wont the body of the primate they were told to their wrathful astonishment that he was already buried and they were shown the letters and taken to see his grave which of course they could not disturb after this all the archbishops were buried in the cathedral and as we shall see later on there was one of them who if he were not a great saint at least was so famous that after his death his shrine became a place of pilgrimage not only for english people but for people from all over europe then there were archbishop dunstan and archbishop alphege st dunstan and st alphege as they came to be called who were buried on either side of the high altar they had magnificent shrines no trace of which remains to-day save a piece of carved stone which formed part of st dunstan's shrine and yet these men whose names seem so vague to us were great and noble figures in their time st dunstan helped to mould the destinies of england st alphege died for his faith and like st alban at verulam helped to swell the english ranks of the noble army of martyrs st dunstan was a little fair-haired delicate somersetshire boy who was born at glastonbury where a famous abbey stood his father hurston was a rich thane who owned lands and vassals and in the winter evenings when these vassals were gathered together in the great hall round the blazing fire they sang songs and told stories to one another and little dunstan listened to them and grew so fond of the old songs and stories that he never forgot them all his life long he was passionately fond of music and persuaded an old harper to teach him to play on the harp and when he grew older and travelled about visiting first at one nobleman's house then at another as befitted a young man of his rank he always carried his harp with him and charmed the fair ladies whom he met with the beautiful music he could draw from its strings he was very fond of reading too and there were plenty of books in the abbey of glastonbury for him to pore over and in time he became known as one of the most learned and cultured youths of his day then he went to court and would doubtless have become a great courtier and perhaps might have idled away his time playing on his harp and talking about literature to the queen and her ladies if it had not been for the unkindness of some of the nobles whom he met there they were jealous of him of his good looks and sunny nature and his skill in music and learning so one day when he was out riding in a marshy part of the country they set on him pulled him off his horse threw him into the marsh trampled him under foot and left him for dead he was not dead however but he was so badly hurt that he had a long illness afterwards and during the days and weeks when he was lying helpless he had time to think about many things about his life and what use he could make of it and by the time he had recovered he had made up his mind that instead of being a courtier he would be a monk i cannot tell you all that happened during his long life he first became abbot of glastonbury then bishop of worcester and then archbishop of canterbury 
now as i have already told you in those days the archbishops of canterbury were practically prime ministers of england as well and dunstan was both a good archbishop and a wise prime minister in his time the danes had conquered a large part of the country and had settled down to live there but instead of conducting themselves like peaceable citizens they behaved like thieves and robbers and naturally the english people feared and hated them and were constantly at war with them trying to drive them out of the country the wise archbishop knew that they would never be able to do this so he tried to make the danes take an interest in the land and learn to look on it as their home by giving them good laws and treating them firmly but justly and in his time at least the plan succeeded he also encouraged foreigners from france and germany to come and trade with england and it was in his days that london first began to grow into a great city he made laws about the coinage of our money and saw that just weights and measures were used by traders so that poor people would not be oppressed and wronged after archbishop dunstan came archbishop alfege the martyr i told you that st dunstan had treated the danes very kindly and wisely but after his death the king ethelred who was a very foolish young man and had never taken the archbishop's advice about anything determined to make one great effort to rid the country of them by putting them all to death so he gave orders that on a certain night the saxons were to kill all the danes who were living many of them quite peaceably in their midst this was done but as you may think dire vengeance followed the treacherous act as soon as the news of the massacre reached swain king of denmark he at once swore a great oath that he would never rest until he had conquered england and avenged his murdered people accordingly he gathered together an immense force of norsemen and danes and descended on the shores of england and for four long years they harried the country burning towns and homesteads wherever they went when it was known that they were approaching canterbury the archbishop was advised to fly for his life as long as there was time but to the brave old man such an act would have been a betrayal of the trust committed to him by god god forbid that i should tarnish my character by such an inglorious deed he exclaimed and be afraid to go to heaven because a violent death might lead me there so he remained at his post a true priest of god to the end and passed triumphantly to his reward through the violent death which he had looked forward to so calmly when the cathedral was attacked he and his monks locked themselves in the great church hoping that its walls would be strong enough to protect them, and they might have been had the Danes not used their most deadly weapon, fire. As an old writer tells us, they brought barrels and piled them together and set them alight. Then they threw them on the roof, and their heat melted the lead with which it was covered, so that it ran down like rain on the poor men inside, who were like to be roasted alive then the brave archbishop gathering his monks around him flung open the door and begged mercy for his little flock of the wild heathen warriors offering willingly to become a prisoner himself if they were allowed to go free it was in vain all the monks except four who managed to escape 
were at once put to death and alphege was led away a prisoner not that the danes wanted to spare him but they hoped that the saxon king might offer to pay a ransom for him but poor cowardly ethelred thought only of his own safety and fled over the sea to normandy so no ransom came from him the country people who loved their good archbishops did their utmost to gather enough money together to rescue him but he heard this and sent messengers to them telling them to desist for as he said there is enough misery in the country without people being made poorer for my sake so the danes became tired of waiting for money and after seven weeks they led alphege out to die in their husting or public meeting-place at greenwich and to make their cruelty more cruel the savage sea-rovers determined that his death should give them a little amusement so they placed him in the centre and stood around in a ring and pelted him with stones and with the sharp horns of oxen just as a thousand years before men had stoned st stephen outside the gates of jerusalem it is terrible to read of such things being done in this peaceful england of ours is it not and we feel thankful to the unknown dane who more merciful than the rest of his countrymen struck the archbishop on the head with his axe and so put an end to his sufferings after he was dead his mangled body was buried at greenwich and the sad story seemed to be at an end end of section one